Welcome to the Together for Good podcast, a podcast specifically designed to inspire, challenge, and uplift you during your daily walk of faith. Today's episode is a recording of a conversation I had with my friend Tim. Dr. Tim Snyder works at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and Tim has his Ph.D. in practical theology. And one of the things that he recently taught a course about, as you'll hear in the course of our conversation, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so I wanted to bring Tim on just to help our listeners uh, know a little bit more about this guy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and theologian and a Christian martyr, as you'll hear. He had an extremely interesting life. And as we trace the patterns and the experiences that he had, you can kind of see how his theology developed and evolved. And and I think he has some really interesting things to teach us. Uh, I should warn you, Tim is a professor. This is going to be the longest podcast in Together for Good History. Um, So feel free to listen to it in parts. I totally understand, but it really is worth it because there's so much to learn from this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, And, you know, we have a bunch of book suggestions and it does get pretty practical at the end in terms of how we think about and process some of the things that, that Bonhoeffer directs us towards. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for your continued support and for sharing this podcast with family and friends. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. That really does help other people find and discover the podcast. But let's get right into it. There's no time to waste. Here it is, a conversation with my friend, Dr. Tim Snyder. Hey, welcome, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, We have a really special guest today on the Together for Good podcast. It is my friend, Dr. Timothy Snyder. Now, this is a different Dr. Tim Snyder than the historian who teaches at Yale University that's often brought on various news programs. Uh, This is uh, maybe the lesser known of the two Dr. Tim Snyders, but a really important get for the the Together for Good podcast, nonetheless. Uh, Tim, hey, thanks for joining us. Hey, Nate. I like... Um, I like the other Dr. Snyder because he keeps me low in my Google search. <laughs> yes, you are hard to find on the Google machine because... I like it that way. The other Dr. Tim Snyder is quite prolific. Uh, but Tim, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. It. What are you doing? Why? What the heck are you a doctor of? Um, that's a good question. Um, so I, I finished a PhD in theology in 2020. Although that, I feel like I was, I, I feel like I worked on that for a long time. Uh, I think a PhD typically takes about five years, but I was, uh, I was working on it for like eight because I was working at the time and apparently writing a dissertation is a full-time job, but uh, I also had a, an actual job I had to do. Yeah, that's, that's difficult. Yeah. And, and currently now though, you are teaching, you're, you're a part of a, you're kind of running a research project at Wesley Seminary. Did I get that correct? Yeah, I teach at Wesley Theological Seminary here in Washington, D.C. I'm a, I'm a what we call here a visiting professor, uh, which just um, is kind of a funny term. I'm, I'm more than just visiting. I live here. Uh, but uh, that's what they call it. Uh, I Most of my day in, day out work is spent as a, a researcher. Uh, we research... We're spending a lot of time with about 50 congregations trying to better understand the religious workforce, um, you know, trying to understand pastors and church staffs and 
volunteer leaders and things like that. So it's a three-year study uh, that we're in year two of, and I think we might go a fourth year. So uh, I'll be here for at least a couple of more years. And yeah, but I also teach theology and I've taught um, at two of our Lutheran seminaries. I've taught at um, the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. And I've also taught, I spent about three years at Wartburg Theological Seminary. So yeah. that's a good seminary. That's uh, that's the one that I went to. I think the part that you're leaving off in your credentials, though, yeah. Tim, uh -huh. is your most distinguished honor, which was Tim Snyder was the best man at my ordination. Which means... <laughs> I think I was your liturgical caddy is the way I remember it. <laughs> you say liturgical caddy. I say best man. Either way, you were a really important part of that day. Yeah. And a continued really important part of my life. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for our conversations. And, and I should just warn the listeners. I have never had a phone conversation with Tim Snyder that was under an hour. So we're not sure how long this uh, this whole conversation will go here today. So buckle up um, because right. what we're going to talk about today is something that you've taught a couple classes on. You've definitely done some research on it. You're, I wanted to bring you on. Um, we're going to bring you on in the future to tell us more about some of your research and what you're learning about congregations yeah. and the workforce. But today I want to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, yeah. He was a Lutheran pastor and a Lutheran theologian who's kind of having a renaissance. It seems like it seems like a lot more people are discovering some of his writings and his works nowadays. And uh, he just has some really important things to teach us. And I know, I mean, just in our meandering conversations on the phone over the years, you've brought up all sorts of interesting details that you've learned about Bonhoeffer that I found really helpful and interesting. And so I'm kind of hoping that we can dig into this today and also get some, uh, you know, some, some meat for the listeners that they can take away knowing a little more about Bonhoeffer and how his ideas apply to their just daily life and walk of faith. How does that sound, Tim? You're in? I think that sounds awesome. Awesome. For a conversation about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, what, just tell us about the guy. Like, I, I, you, I could give my, like, very short piece to it, but you've taught a couple classes on Bonhoeffer. What was the class you taught last summer? Yeah, last summer, um, I have a I have a great arrangement here at Wesley Seminary because um, because I don't teach in the regular curriculum, I can just teach whatever I want. Um, and, um, and so, but when you're a new professor, and nobody knows you, you have to like give your courses sexy titles that way everybody will sign up for your courses. <laughs> uh, and so we were heading into an election year. And um, there was a lot of talk about, um, about you know, just because of the, the kind of state of our national discourse or whatever that we were sort mm -hmm. of in a, uh, a post-truth world is what um, we would hear on the, the news. And so mm -hmm. um, I thought that was interesting because one of my favorite um, writings from Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, a, is a, an essay fragment. We actually don't even have the, it was an essay that he was working on at the time he died. So we don't, we don't actually know how this essay ends, uh, but the essay begins uh, by Bonhoeffer asking, what does it mean to tell the truth? And he's asking that question and reflecting on it in a context in which he is being you know, interrogated by the Gestapo on a daily basis and he's regularly lying to them. And so uh, yeah. it was an interesting um, thing. And I thought that might be a good hook for for students. And so I, I offered a course that was called Reading Bonhoeffer in a Post-Truth World. 
Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Um, yeah, I can see how that would be incredibly applicable and, and we should definitely dig into that a little bit. Yeah. But probably, probably sure. before we get, get there, just to help the listeners in case they're not familiar with Bonhoeffer, can you give us a little bit of timeline and details about this guy? You mentioned that he died. So apparently RIP Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right. um, but, but I'm sure a lot of things came before that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think one of the, there's a, there's probably a few things that could be said about Bonhoeffer's somewhat uh, unusual entry into the theological scene. Um, you know, the first of which is that if you, if you look at, some of the big theological heavyweights of his of his time, some of his contemporaries, like nearly all of them are pastors' kids, uh, which is its own thing. We could we could. There's talk nothing about. wrong with pastors' kids. Let me just say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wasn't one, and um, you know, he was he was born into a a, a family. His father was a, a psychiatrist, a pretty well known psychiatrist. Uh, at the time, um, a few in his early, you know, he was still very quite young, really. Um, the Bonhoeffers moved to Berlin because his father Karl uh, took on the the chair of psychiatry at the University of Berlin, which is a pretty big deal. That at that point they became, you know, basically among the the Berlin elite, and they lived in a very elite neighborhood, and they lived an elite life and uh, Bonhoeffer uh, especially um, they lived right next door to a really famous Lutheran um, theologian and he would kind of uh, what, who, what theologian was that? Carl uh, Hall. Okay. And was he teaching at university as well? Yeah. He was teaching at Berlin. So this was kind of like yeah. academics row that they lived in. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was, uh, you know, it, like I said, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, they, they, it was a, he comes from a family that has a significant amount of money. Um, actually, there's, a, there's like a funny story actually from, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer, his kind of story is that he, he, uh, he starts his theological studies at Tübingen, which is a really famous university in, um, in Germany. And he, he ends up coming back home and studying at the university, or, or he comes back home and he ends up teaching at the University of, of Berlin. And mm. what's kind of interesting ab about him is it, uh, early on, he spends a couple of years in Spain. He's basically doing a like a pastoral residency in Spain. And there's a there's a new Bonhoeffer biography from uh, a theologian named Charles Marsh, who teaches at the University of Virginia. And his biography is called A Strange Glory. It's about, it, the title comes from Bonhoeffer's favorite psalm. But uh, <laughs> in this biography, he talks about this time where he was in Spain. And uh, he's going to assist a pastor that needs help. He needs like an assistant pastor, like in the worst kind of way. And, um, and you know, he's like, when, when can you get here? You know, I, I really need your help. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and all of Bonhoeffer's correspondence to him is about, like, whether or not, like, how many coats he needs to bring. Uh, <laughs> he's like, you know, should I bring my evening coat? You know, uh, and the guy's like, you know, what are you talking about, your evening coat? And, like, the, the story kind of goes on that then he gets there 
and like <laughs> writes back to his mom and he's like, Mom, I, I need the rest of my wardrobe. Can you have my wardrobe sent? Uh, so it just really, I mean, it really highlights the the like privilege and the mindset that he was kind of coming from of just like, what should I wear? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and it comes out in his early writings. I mean, he, you know, he has his PhD by the time he's in his early 20s, but he's he's super cocky. He's not. You know, he's probably like a lot of other high achieving, you know, men in their early 20s who were born uh, in privilege, got born it. Into yeah, privilege, yeah. not particularly pleasant to be around, um, you know, think they're the center of the world, that kind of thing. But he, um, you know, to be fair to, to Bonhoeffer, he um, he starts out you know, the way you start out in, in, at the time in German academia is you don't have like a regular teaching position. They just let you offer courses and you collect a salary based on how many people come to your lectures and your seminars. And so he had that kind of a role and he offered courses there. Um, it, you know, he spent right after his doctoral, uh, finishing his, his first doctoral dissertation. In Germany, you write two dissertations, but um he well that would have taken you 16 years <laughs> it's, it's a good thing i didn't go to germany for my job <laughs> um, my wife would appreciate that <laughs> um you know so he he spends a year on a, on a kind of a teaching fellowship sort of thing at union theological seminary in new york union theological at the time is like uh it's really a sort of bastion of sort of liberal christianity yeah um but it's also located right on the edge of um, uh, of Harlem, and and so when he's and the there, Harlem Renaissance, right? Like, wasn't that what's the time yeah. we're talking here? So he the his the year the first year he's the first time he goes to America is in 1930. He spends the the 1930 31 year in uh, at Union nice. at Union, yeah. Yeah. It, it's there really that he, um, you know, he uh, he really is introduced. Uh, there's a young seminarian named Frank Fisher, who is an African-American seminarian at the time uh, at Union. And Frank Fisher really introduces Bonhoeffer to the black church. And yeah. that's kind of relevant, I think, in an important way. It's, it's kind of, it speaks to kind of two parts of, of his contemporary relevance. I mean, one is that like, you know, we have some evidence that Bonhoeffer like participated in sit-ins and things like that. So he was, he was more than just like a, you know, curious, uh, you know, foreigner who was just kind of interested in understanding what weird things we do here in the United States. But he, he really went to uh, a lot of the most famous liberal churches and heard them preach and he hated it. Um, mm -hmm. in fact, he, He's, you know, he writes back home in a letter to one of his friends. He, he says that uh, that none of the students at Union know any theology. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, he had just finished a dissertation on the church. It's basically a kind of sociology, a theology of the church. And he... He was trying to write in his dissertation, which is like awful to get all, get through. Like if you decide you want to start reading Bonhoeffer after this conversation, don't start with his dissertation. You'll never read another thing. It's dense and very complicated technical writing. Uh, but what he's really talking about there is uh, he's trying to 
imagine he's trying to write about the the sort of the purpose of the church basically and he they didn't the bonhoeffers didn't really go to church that much growing up and so he didn't really have a thick wow experience of the church he's writing a, a, in, in, about the church in pretty idealized ways yeah he's writing in his first dissertation about what the church should be or could be what he imagines huh. for that uh, which, which also kind of reeks of the whole the whole mindset you're talking about of just you know born of privilege really successful really intelligent um young individual who is just kind of full of themselves and thinks they know and should tell everyone what to do is that fair yeah, I think you know there, you you can read that. In, it's maybe a little bit, uh, you know, not be the most generous way to put it, but yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I just, all this is it's just game recognizing game. Like I was yeah. the same way when yeah, yeah. I was twenty two. Oh, I was off twenty two. I I'm glad I didn't write a dissertation when I was twenty two. But what, you know, what's funny is it like it's like this it's this mental game for Bonhoeffer in some ways. Yeah, and um, then he realizes, though, at Obsidian Baptist Church in Harlem, that that church that he was writing about really exists. Whoa! But it doesn't exist in the white church; it exists in the black church. Fascinating. And it's really there that he, you know, everybody around him you know he he had done some international travel growing up but you know he grew up in a very white world mm -hmm. and um he really didn't have a concept of race you know not a, a very self-critical one anyway mm -hmm. in new york but this later becomes really important for him because when he goes back to germany you know by 1930 he's back in germany in 1931 but it's 1933 that Hitler becomes chancellor. Yeah, I was going to ask if anything important happened in Germany in the 1930s. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, almost immediately Hitler begins to, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Hitler begins to, to pass a series of laws um, uh, that are sort of collectively um, uh, well, there's a whole series of them, really, in 1933. But one of the most famous ones is uh, this uh, particular clause that's called the Aryan Paragraph, which prevents folks from Jewish ancestry from civil service. And because in Germany it was a state church, being a pastor would be included. Oh, wow. In oh, that's interesting. And uh, it's most of what we talk about when we think about that era and we think about the German church, we often talk about the German church struggle because a, a group of folks, you know, clearly went along with Hitler and a whole group did not. But those who did not largely didn't, their their main objections to it were uh, that the, the, the state, Hitler's government, was getting involved in church affairs. Hmm. Not that Hitler was also dehumanizing Jews, <laughs> right? So yeah. uh, the framework by which they thought it was a problem was somewhat muted. And it was really Bonhoeffer has the kind of singular clarity that this is a, a problem 
of of race and casting of another people. Wow. He knows that because of the black church. Wow. He saw that. He participated in that. Uh, towards the end of his time, he bought a car and a buddy of his, a couple of friends of his that he met at Union, took a road trip. They road tripped all the way down through Chicago, down to Texas. They went to Mexico and he came back up through Louisiana, through the deep south. And he, you know, he writes, he's always writing letters back home. And we have much of this correspondence. And we know from that correspondence that he was appalled at, at the way that African-Americans were treated in the South. He, he might have participated in some sort of low-level uh, protests and social activism in New York, but what he saw in the South was of a whole other order. So he, this was really ingrained in him, and it gave him eyes to see things that other German theologians couldn't. Interesting. So then, and then as I understand it too, I mean, he did a lot of work when he, he finishes his time at Union, and then he, he goes back to Germany to teach, I think you said, but he also then starts mounting a sort of resistance to Hitler in some subtle ways, correct? Yes, I mean, that's true. Um, he, you know, in, in many ways, um, that's true. Um, Bonhoeffer still is basically nobody at this point. Um, okay. He... You know, his dissertation is published by now, but um, I mean, Karl Barth thought his dissertation was great, <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't a big deal. Um, he was still only a lecturer. Um, so he he wasn't really a prominent voice in in that. Or was he not a, not a sort of leading you know figure in the sort of way that I think sometimes he's. He's assumed to be interesting. So, and is he like the type of, is he like a Van Gogh? You know, he, he only sold one painting in his lifetime, but then <laughs> blew up afterwards. Like, is that, is that a fair analogy or did he eventually gain some notoriety? He gained some modest notoriety. I mean, he, you know, 1932, uh, 1933, um, really through 1935 is a particularly bad time to be starting uh, an academic career uh, in Germany. Um, you know, folks are losing their academic appointments left and right. Yep. Um, you know, this is, it, yes, he's definitely speaking out against Hitler. He's definitely speaking out. You know, there was also an effort at the time, you know, part of Hitler's strategy to co-opt the church was in Germany at the time, you mostly had a series of regional churches. There was not a centralized church. And so part of what Hitler accomplished was getting all these regional churches to agree to appoint a national bishop, which had never existed before. And um, it, he really, Bonhoeffer's really outspoken about this. And, you know, so he, he, he's, in, he's in trouble, you know, pretty early on. It's going to be pretty difficult him and, for him in the 1930s to get, you know, the kind of faculty position um, that would give him a real platform. Uh, at the same mm. time, applies to be, uh, he can't be ordained without being an assistant pastor. So he has a couple of assistant pastor gigs. They don't like pay real money or anything. He does well, including the one in Spain with the coats, right? What was that? He had the, he had the assistant pastor job in Spain with all the coats. Yeah, that was kind of like a curacy kind of thing. It was, um, 
on his okay. way, you know. Yeah, I think yeah, that's right though. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't pay real money though. I mean, he um, he applies to be a full time pastor, um, a full pastor at several congregations, um, and he can't get the vote of the congregation. In no way, what? Those things are slam dunks. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know about these things. I, I mean, uh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's just, that's always the joke. Like, if you get it to a congregational vote, I guess I don't know what the process was like before that. But in these days, if you get it to a congregational vote and the congregation votes no, I, you know, I don't know. There's, there's a whole bunch of committees before that that should have figured out that you weren't a good fit. But anyways, it might, it might have been yeah. different in 1930s Germany, I, I would assume. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, certainly. So anyway, 1933, 1934 is kind of pivotal for Bonhoeffer. What happens is that uh, the mostly what we think about as the the group, the, the side of the German church struggle, which opposed Hitler, we we usually think about that as being the confessing church. And that comes out of uh, a group of theologians and pastors who got together in Barmen, Germany in 1934, uh, and they write what's called the Barman Declaration. Um, and you know, the I know a lot of barmen who make declarations, but I'm guessing <laughs> this is different. Yeah, it's probably a little different. Uh, <laughs> although, uh, as the story goes, Karl Barth, who was at Barman, uh, famously said that he wrote most of the Barman Declaration. He's a Reformed theologian, not a Lutheran theologian. And this was an effort by both Reformed and Lutheran theologians together, which is what most people in uh, Germany were, you know, some combination of Reformed and Lutheran. But uh, Bart liked to say that, you know, the, the Lutheran theologians didn't have the work ethic for it, and they were all taking naps while he was smoking cigars and writing the Barman Declaration. Um, nobody, nobody's ever said anything else happened. So I don't, I guess we have to take Karl Barth's word for it, but, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer is not there. Bonhoeffer is not, it's really the Barman declaration, which establishes this resistance church, the confessing church. Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer's not there. Uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, is unsure of what God wants him to do, but he, he, he's resigned himself that he'll never in this political climate get an academic job. He's failed three times to get a church job. And so he goes to England and he agrees to pastor two, two German-speaking congregations in London. And so in 1934, he's sort of on his way to do that while everybody else is in Barman trying to resist Hitler. Uh, but the Barman Declaration wow. itself basically is insisting that, you know, uh, Hitler at this point has asked all Lutheran pastors uh, to to swear loyalty to him. Whoa. That's what the Barman Declaration is drawing a line on. They're insisting that Christ, uh, only Christ deserves such loyalty. It's, you know, it's this kind of thing that leads Bonhoeffer to write of Hitler that he's the Antichrist. Right. He's, he's sort of assuming that mantle of Messiah. Um and that, that's yeah. literally and, the, anti, the definition of an antichrist. I mean, and you think just too, especially for Lutherans, that would have been a really bridge too far. I mean, Martin Luther has a lot of specific stuff about you, you can't join extra 
yeah. um, guilds. Like you can't pledge allegiance to, you know, other societies. That's why Lutheran churches, that's why Lutheran pastors can't be a part of the Kiwanis club or whatever it is. They don't let them be a part of. Yeah. Well, I remember when I had to go through, when I went through candidacy and my preparation yeah. to be a pastor, I had to like tell them, like, I'm not a member of. Knights well, of yeah, Columbus. And, and, yeah. Knights of Columbus or anything like that. It was a very, <laughs> that was the first I'd heard about it. I'm like, wait, what, what's the story with this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 1934, though, is also the year that Hitler becomes both chancellor and president. So uh, it was bad before, then it gets real bad, because when he's chancellor and president, that's when Hitler takes his emergency powers. And there, at that point, there virtually is no, like what we would call Congress. There is no legislative body after 1934. Everything's no, no checks and balances. No, it's all everything's being done under the emergency laws. Wow. And so uh, from a certain point of view, you know, it was it was good that he got out. Um, you know, that's significant, I think, for the Bonhoeffer story, because what happens in England is uh, he gets really plugged in to the Church of England and to the local bishop there, George Bell. And of course, because. England is also a state church. The bishops are also part of the House of Lords. They're, you know, they're part of the government. And so Bonhoeffer develops a series of relationships through the Church of England that become the very network by which he's going to help Jews get out of the country later on. Mm. Also, because of these relationships that um, he is later to play a role in the resistance. Mm -hmm. Resistance is cut off. And so the idea is that, you know, can Bonhoeffer get word to members of parliament who might be able to go see the foreign secretary, who might be able to tell them about this resistance on the ground. And that, so that so he becomes a conduit and that conduit wouldn't be possible if he hadn't spent those years in London. So that wow. was kind of serendipitous for in, in his sort of story. But um, you know, some random Lutheran pastor serving German-speaking congregations in London is not like a particular platform by which to criticize Hitler. So, I mean, again, nobody in the early 30s really knows him. The confessing church is really small. Um, it's the confessing church that sets up this seminary. Uh, confessing church folks are banned from German universities. And so they set up alternative training for those confessing church folks that want to be a pastor. And that's what Bonhoeffer does. He takes them to a place called Finkenwalde. Mm -hmm. And it's there that Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, before he set up Finkenwalde, he traveled around a lot of kind of monastic communities. Um, yeah. And he borrows heavily from, you know, he, he writes about establishing a kind of new kind of monasticism. And so a couple of important points we need to, to draw out from that is yeah. that you and I have had many conversations about starting our own seminary and wanting to call it Finkenvelda, not a, yeah. a little hat tip to Bonhoeffer. But more importantly, just let it be noted that yeah. Bonhoeffer could not be called as a pastor of a church, but sure, he could train future pastors. <laughs> <laughs> There's some... Yeah, I mean, there weren't a whole lot of other options. I mean, like I said, the confessing church was small. You know, they didn't have a lot of... Uh, it just certainly seems like a fish. pattern for our seminaries today. And that's all I'll say about that. 
I could say more, but <laughs> so Tim, talk to us about talk to us. I, I kind of want to get to some of the practicalities too, because there's 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 a lot of what Bonhoeffer ends up writing that becomes, you know, it, it's how you developed your course last summer. Um, yeah. In a post-truth world, reading Bonhoeffer is a really interesting practice. So give us some details kind of about that. Yeah. So I think if you look at the kind of, if you look at like his entire corpus, right, you know, everything that we've been talking here kind of comes out of his early theological formation. Uh, his, you know, these are very academic writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it probably should be said that uh, he does come back from Harlem with another insight. And that's that his writing should change. <laughs> Uh, He talks about there in Harlem undergoing a conversion, a conversion from the phraseological to the real. And uh, that that's significant. And you can see that in the writings that Bonhoeffer writes during his time or coming out of Finkevald. Finkevald doesn't last that long. Uh, It lasts for just a couple of years before the Gestapo says, yeah, we're done with that and shut it down. But he does write about, um, he he first writes a book called Discipleship. It's sometimes published under the alternative title of The Cost of Discipleship uh, in the English version of it. But this is a book that's really Bonhoeffer's vision of the Christian life. Uh-huh. Um, he isn't initially interested in this, but everybody wants him to write a book uh, that is remembering the the rhythm of life that the seminarian shared together at Finkevalda. Um, and that's where life together comes out of. Life together comes out of that. Bonhoeffer is hesitant because you know he thinks they were kind of just getting started. He doesn't want to concretize something. Yep. In writing, you know, before it was just getting started, but. Uh, the reality is he thought it might be useful in a world in which um, that, that, that seminary was shut down. I mean, he continues to train pastors through letter writing. And so life together becomes kind of a template, like a, a different kind of rule of life for that kind of underground seminary. So he, he writes life together. Both life together and discipleship are like, you know, today kind of thought about as spiritual classics. And so anybody, yep. who, I mean, these are books that like any, you know, Anybody would would likely, you know, the writing feels like it's 70 years old or more because it is. But, you know, uh, it's it's pretty accessible. I mean, it's pretty accessible. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. You can read through it. It's there's some and there's just great stuff in there. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, there's that whole the whole first group, uh, whole first period of time is really his very academic writings. There's a middle portion of his writings that are, you know, spiritual works in many ways. And then things go, you know, south from there. Um, You know, basically at this point in Germany, everybody's getting conscripted into the military. When he's at Union, he picks up a certain peace ethic. He's not a pacifist in the classic way that we think of pacifism, or at least the way most people think about pacifism. So I would not say that Bonhoeffer is a pacifist, but he certainly has a strong peace ethic. Yeah, did, didn't doesn't he claim the title of pacifist though, or is that I, I thought I remember reading that somewhere, or maybe that's like a nuanced understanding of that word. But he was very um, well, and you, you you probably have know that some of the specific readings itself, like just very committed to a peace ethic and a do yeah. no harm kind of approach. 
Yeah, I mean, he he didn't want to serve in the military, you know. Yeah. To be fair, uh, you know, you know, to be fair, his brothers had served. He had a brother who died in World War One, so you can also understand why you know the, the Bonhoeffers knew the cost of conscription. Uh, yeah. And so he was pretty clever. I mean, you know, not a lot of people were happy about this, to be fair. But Bonhoeffer, the way that Bonhoeffer gets out of military service is interesting. He has his brother-in-law, who is a lawyer in the Nazi government, get him an exemption where he is suddenly made um, a chaplain and courier for military intelligence. So he preemptively joins the military intelligence as a way of getting out of going on the front lines. Hmm. Uh, that's probably, I mean, that's clearly also out of that sense of privilege. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but it's really, I mean, Karl Barth thought he was bonkers at this point. It, some people thought he had turned. Uh, they they had no idea what to make of this. Now, really, he was laying the groundwork for a greater involvement in the conspiracy. But then huh. you couldn't talk about that. You know, so he can't write back to Karl Barth and say, don't worry, buddy. Hint, hint, wink, wink. I've got this. <laughs> you know, uh, all the mail's being read. So it's not, you know, right. going to do any good. Um, and a lot of the folks at the Confessing Church weren't so sure about Bonhoeffer at this point. Um, of course, he he uh, he gets a, arrested because uh, a lot of people think he gets arrested because of his involvement in the conspiracy. That's not exactly true. Um, what had happened is that some people were, uh, you know, the Nazi government was suspicious as a rule of thumb, and they sure. they uh, arrested um, some some folks and found the paperwork that was forged in order to get Bonhoeffer his uh, exemption. And oh. the process of executing that warrant, they also found the records uh, that were used to, to send the, uh, he, he got Jews out of Germany, but they needed their money sent out of Germany as well. So they would have something on, you know, once they got to Switzerland and they found those wire transfers. And so they arrested all of the money. People. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. It's just a white collar crime that got yeah. arrested, basically. Um, white collar crime for Jesus, basically. And he was in, he was from that point on, he was held. It wasn't until um, much later, actually, uh, in 44, uh, you know, so he, he's arrested. Um, he, he's arrested in, uh, 43, 40, no, that's not right. Okay. Um, yeah. When was he arrested? I should know this off the top of my head. Um, 43. Yeah, that's right. 40, yeah, trust yourself. 43, 44, something like that. So he's, he's in prison for the last three or four years of his life. Yeah. It's while he's in prison that the conspiracy, uh, the sort of famous, um, there's a, a famous one uh, called the July 20th attempt on his life. That's the, the one that, 
they're, they always make movies about in <laughs> um, the July 20th assassination attempt after that one. That's one that almost got Hitler, actually. And so they they're arresting and killing thousands of people based on their apparent involvement in this conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, and that's when they figure out that his brother-in-law is so involved. And that's when they really transfer him to the concentration camps. But that whole period in prison that, you know, three or four years gives him the opportunity. To, he didn't have a lot to do, uh, but people are bringing him books. And it, it's funny. Another point of like about his privilege is that for most of the time he's in a, a like a local jail. He's not in a concentration camp. He's just in a political prison. And he like he he's allowed more like a, a fuller ration of food and his regular clothing. And he just sends his his laundry home. And his mom does his laundry and then sends the laundry back. <laughs> it's a bizarre kind of thing. Oh my During god. The whole time he writes some of his most influential books. And you know, he died when he dies, he's not very well known even then, but he he's very well connected at that point. And it's really folks like you know, he he be, he had a relationship with Reinhold Niebuhr, a famous 20th century theologian, heavyweight, Karl Barth, of course. And a lot of those folks were the ones who made sure that his corpus of writings was was published after his his death. And it's only really then in the the wake of the of World War II that his writings become so popular. Right. Well, it's the it's the whole like martyrdom piece of it, too, Correct. I'm sure, that adds yeah. to it. Yeah. But so um, amongst those writings, I am really I do want to get to this of of what is it that you think, you know, your average person might really take away from some of Bonhoeffer's wisdom in terms of some, just some of the things that he did that, that we could really apply to our daily life in some ways, especially in the world we're living in now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think three things stand out for me. You know, one is all of those those spiritual writings that, you know, discipleship in life together really make up um, a, a, just a wonderful set. Uh, there's lots of different devotional guides and things like that where you can work mm -hmm. your way. You know, there's different books where you can read through Bonhoeffer in a year and stuff as a devotional. And I think those materials are are really ideal for that. I mean, I think in Discipleship in Life Together, you'll find a, a, a vision for, for folks who want um, a really serious form of, of Christian discipleship. Um, Bonhoeffer, you know, among other things, could never be claimed that he didn't take everything quite seriously. And, um, you know, there you will find uh, a serious and rigorous vision of Christian discipleship. Mm -hmm. you, you won't read discipleship and life together and think that that, that this is easy. <laughs> yeah, that the Christian life is just this thing that we do on Sunday. And I, you know, I think, again, for people who want um, who want to take that quite seriously, those are, are incredible resources. Um, you know, the other one that I, I the other part of Bonhoeffer's story um, that I, I think is interesting um, and is it, something that I, I, I think we should all think a little bit more about. Is so I said Bonhoeffer went to America in 1930. He returned in 1939. Things were getting really bad in 1939 after they closed down uh, Finkewalde. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr got him a faculty position at Union, but he didn't really ever even take it. He 
he got here, he spent a month here, and then he left. <laughs> uh, he decided it was a bad idea. He decided that if he wanted to be a part of rebuilding Germany after the war, uh, that mm. he needed to suffer along with the German people. And so he returned. But And that, I mean, I got to think that would really stem out of his understanding of, of what it means to be a person of faith, too. Oh, like, absolutely. Just, yeah. Yeah. Compassion and suffering with and. Yeah. Yeah, not just taking the easy way out, which is also a fascinating piece to think about, given his life of privilege and that he he did live, you know, like have a lot of things handed to him and a lot really easy early on in life. And then he comes to see his life of faith as being a direct uh, critique of that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about that month that he spent here is like he he did do a little writing while he was here. And he wrote an interesting piece. He wrote a little essay called, um, called Protestantism without Reformation. And it's a, it's basically a theological description of the American church. And he's reflecting on, um, the church in America. And he asks this question there about, you know, what does the church in America have to offer the German church? And what would the German church have to offer the American church? And one of the conclusions that he made, you know, basically the, the little essay is about the diversity, about what makes American religion unique and uh, around the world. But in the midst of that, he says that, uh, maybe I'll just read a, a quick excerpt from it if I can find it. But he he's making a really interesting claim about, um, uh, about, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in a particular place? Uh-huh. And, um, and he, when he reflects on that about, you know, he, in Bonhoeffer's mind, God is a very active participant in history. God is not so far and away, but is very sort of immediately present. And God's very involved in the unfolding of history. And so this is the way that he describes the, the American church. He says, God did not grant a reformation to American Christendom. He gave strong revitalist preachers, men of the church and theologians, but not a reformation. But no reformation of the church of Jesus Christ from the word of God. Those churches of the reformation that came to America either stand in deliberate seclusion and distance from general church life or have fallen victim to Protestantism without reformation. Jeez. And what he means by that is that, uh, you know, at the time of the reformation, the reformers had to decide what they were willing to live and die for. And what he's suggesting is that that's not what happens in the American church. <laughs> right. There is no yes. professional basis for the American church. What happens in America, you know, if you don't like what's going on, you just go down the road and start your own church. <laughs> and, and so that's produced an incredible diversity. Uh, that's the sort of, you know, reality. But Bonhoeffer wants to challenge the American church to really ask itself um, that question. What would really be worth dying for? Wow. Well, and so that's a, I mean, gosh, what a, and, and you hear the, the echoes of that in cost of discipleship, in life together to some degree as well, of just this, 
this really putting it to people saying like the life of faith, I think it's in cost of discipleship. Yeah, it is where he says the life of faith is Jesus's invitation, come and die. And so that really, it's powerful because that seems to resonate through a lot of his writings and a lot of his evolving understanding of what um, it means to be a person of faith. Yeah. And then he actually literally lives it out too. He embodies that very teaching in the ways that he um, ends up dying at the hands of uh, in a concentration camp, uh, yeah. trying to subvert Hitler. And so, Tim, what I'm wondering about, though, is what about in Bonhoeffer's writings from prison when he's in the middle of really living out his faith like this? What are his reflections on it? Because I know that we have some writings from his time in prison, and I, I'll admit I haven't read those. So I would just love to hear a little bit about how he reflects on some of the dynamics that are going on and his real sense of his faith calling him to take these very radical actions. Yeah, so in their form that we have them today, there's there's really two separate um, separate volumes that um, are are often referred to as the prison writings, and one of them is his book, um, which is published. It's just called Ethics, and then the other one is a collection of other material that's collected as letters and papers from prison. And the themes that come up over again, um, I mean, that's why it's called ethics. He's wondering often about um, what what Bonhoeffer is going to call responsible action. What does it mean to be a responsible person in the particular times in which he's living in? Um, you know, a time that's marked by uh, you know deep Christian nationalism, um, by totalitarianism. It's marked by um, the atrocities, of course, of the Holocaust, for which Bonhoeffer knows um, quite a bit more detail than your average German, um, because again, his brother-in-law is is a, a government official, and his office is keeping detailed records of the atrocities, and so Bonhoeffer has a little bit more access to information than your your average Joe. But he, so, um, so yeah, those are the kind of main, uh, that the ethics is probably the main sort of theological theme and his letters and the letters are, you know, kind of like they sound, it's a lot of correspondence, um, a lot of correspondence with family and friends. Um, there's a particularly notable one that he writes letter that he writes, uh, that is 10 years after Hitler came to power. So it was written in April of 1944, that would be. And that it's a Christmas letter. And it's a little bit more developed than you know, some of it. Sometimes he's just writing to his sister on her birthday or whatever. Um, but this was, was a letter that's a little bit more composed. And so it has headings and, and stuff like that. And there's a, 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 a kind of a famous section of that um, of that letter that's called uh, are we still of any use? And maybe I'll just maybe I'll yeah, yeah. read a little bit of that. Bonhoeffer says, We have been silent witnesses to evil deeds. We have become cunning and learned the arts of obfuscation and equivocal speech. Experience has rendered us suspicious of other human beings. And often we've failed to speak 
to them a true and open word. Unbearable conflicts have worn us down or even made us cynical. Are we still of any use? We need not geniuses. We will need not geniuses, cynics, people who have contempt for others or cunning tacticians, but simple, uncomplicated, and honest human beings. Will our inner strength to resist what has been forced on us have remained strong enough and our honesty with ourselves blunt enough to find a way back to simplicity and honesty. I, I don't think that those are. So, yeah, let's, yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you think he's getting at with the simplicity and honesty? It, I was, I was just kind of struck by how it's, it felt out of place with all this like deep reflection. And it feels like the thing that he wants us to get back to is just simplicity and honesty. I was kind of expecting something more grandiose maybe. I think um, there's conflicting evidence in the letters for this, but uh, by 1944, it, it seems pretty obvious that he's not getting out of prison. Okay. And so he's really reflecting on what yeah. is his usefulness yes. now. Yeah, he... I, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, this is my reading for whatever it's worth. Um, you know, I it, it's he he realizes in April anyway uh, that plans are fairly advanced for the conspiracy. It's pretty clear that once that happens, one of two things: if it's successful, who knows? <laughs> uh, actually, it was entirely unclear what would happen if they really could successfully uh, assassinate. Hitler. But if it wasn't successful, hmm. it was pretty clear that he would be discovered, his role would be discovered along with his brother-in-law and, and others, and that he would he would likely die. Um, that was pretty clear, I think. And so you get these very existential reflections, you know, from Bonhoeffer in his prison writings. Um, I think he's, what he's getting at is, you know, there's a, I think it's kind of it's a bit of a stereotype, but but this is true in our Lutheran tradition that I think we inherit from the the German cultural tradition. Uh, we can tend to be pretty heady. Uh -huh. and be, we can tend to rationalize or perhaps over-rationalize matters. And I, I think that's what he's resisting about. I think he sees a kind of insidious use of that rationalization uh, among many people in Germany that are sort of rationalizing what is happening. Oh, interesting. And, so that's a good, yeah. that's a really good like little nugget for us to take from him too, is the ways that the incredibly academic can also have a, a dark side to it if we let it run too rampant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and, and right, as, as you've kind of told us through going through his biography, he was in an incredibly intelligent household, right? His father, very, very successful yeah. psychologist. And then he, at a very young age, obviously showed this promise too. So most of his life has been um, scholarly and, and praise of the scholarly too, pursuing the scholarly, praise of the scholarly. And then he ends up um, in his, you know, final years. Was it he's in prison for three years before his death? Something like that. Say that part again. He was in prison for three years before yeah, his death. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so then I think yeah. 
it's interesting just how that changes what you value. Um, right. And how you yeah look back on your life and understand it too. So yeah, I mean, he, you know, I think one of the the, the other um, thread of his prison writings, you know, a lot of people think that this is probably his most mature theological writings. But um, he there's a there's a couple of phrases that he comes up with. He stumbles upon them when he's writing letters to his his best friend Eberhard Bethke, and um, he's reflecting basically on this kind of question about, you know, what really is Christianity? And, or to put that in the way that Bonhoeffer is going to say, who really is Christ for us today? Hmm. Who is Christ for us today? And the more he reflects on this question, he, he's thinking about the world around him. And he says that the world has come of age that, and this is, you know, has to do with some debates around, secularism or so-called secularism or the idea that society is becoming less and less religious. But but for Bonhoeffer, he means something actually kind of specific about this phrase as he sort of elaborates it in this letter. He'll kind of go on and he'll say that, you know, there was a time where people used religion to answer all those questions that they didn't have answers to. But that's not the world we live in. That's not what, you know, those aren't the kinds of questions people are asking. That's not Religion doesn't need to be a, you know, sort of religion of the gaps, as it were. And, and or, even, yeah, and it's funny how, how true that is for us now, even more so than it was then. Right. Oh, that's right. And so, you know, he, he pins this phrase that has been attributed to him and, um, you know, kind of has taken on a life of its own. But he, he then wonders about what, what would a religionless Christianity look like? Or in other words, you know, how might Christianity look different? if it were to shed itself of all of that um, rote, you know, kind of tradition for tradition's sake. And he's not just doing that to be novel um, or, you know, yeah, to you know, come up with the next best, best, next best thing. I mean, for Bonhoeffer, he, he's going to say, look, our entire, the entire inheritance that we have inherited this generation, his generation, he's in his late thirties. The, the inherited version of Christianity um, he's going to say in his letters um, is exhausted. It's of, it's empty. And it's up to us to come up with something else. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's really funny how, I see how he's equating and kind of conflating a lot of these different pieces. Yeah. And yet for me, religionless Christianity, like that phrase, I feel like in a lot of ways, religion is often what helps keep us from becoming just all caught in our head and mm -hmm. not connecting with our heart. But that also might just be my experience of it. Cause I mean, I also, these days we have folks who will say they are, spiritual but not religious and i feel like that's often kind of what they're getting at and talking about too is that they don't want to just be caught in the way we've always done things and going through the motions they want it to really speak to them on a soul depth level um that's often yeah not connected to the academic in any so way shape or form and that's part of the appeal so it's very funny how these you know the echoes of this uh, have morphed and, and changed a little bit moving forward in time since Bonhoeffer first penned them. 
yeah. and yet how they still are very relevant and, and, and really kind of a part of the ongoing conversation too, if not directly quoting Bonhoeffer. Um, yeah. The, the reverberations of what he first said seem to still be sticking around in different places. Yeah, I think um, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I I certainly find a lot of the ideas that he was working with to be relevant today. But but even if folks don't, I mean, I think in Bonhoeffer, what you have is if you read enough of them or you you read a little bit of early, a little bit of middle, a little bit of late Bonhoeffer, you the, the beauty of it is that you'll you'll see somebody who who really didn't assume that he had the Christian life figured out mm-hmm. he, he very much was living um in order to figure it out <laughs> um which is a little bit different than the kind of ways that we typically think about you know um turning yeah. people into saints you know we, we do this thing we turn bonhoeffer and dorothy day and uh, mother Teresa, and like we turn them into concrete bird baths you know and put them in our uh, <laughs> gardens and we say oh look how pretty is there a saint you know i mean bonhoeffer is is literally a gargoyle on um the westminster cathedral you know so um there's a way that we can kind of overdo it and and i but i think his his life is a witness to to somebody a kind of christianity a kind of christian life um that does not assume that he has figured it out, but, but is with his heart and his mind and ultimately with his body um, trying to figure it out. And, and it costs him all of those things. I yeah. mean, in a lot of our conversation, Nate, it, this has been fun because you've, you've been asking me the questions, but you know, there's something that, that when Bonhoeffer writes about um, this whole religionless Christianity and he starts to get into like, the specifics, right? He starts to say, uh, you know, he says, oh, I, I mean, we'll never see this. He's writing to his best friend. He says, oh, you know, like, we'll never see this. Um, so instead, we should just ask ourselves, um, what, what kind of Christianity do we want our children to have? And, you know, I don't have kids, but you do. <laughs> so, so maybe you can wrap, you can close us out by I mean, I wonder if you would pick up where Bonhoeffer left off and maybe just reflect a little bit about that. Wow. Thanks, Tim. No, that's a that's a great place to kind of to close. I mean, the Christianity, I hope my kids find that uh, mean thing for them, for the world. Um, and I just I, I kind of just come back to that of leaving this place better than how we found it. Uh, mm. and, and, I, and I think a lot... I know that seems like such a simplistic answer, but when you really dive into it as well, um, there's a lot of ways that we haven't been better. I think Mm. about a lot of the conversations about environmentalism and the warming planet. And and I mean, that's part of what keeps, what kind of world is my leaving to my kids or my grandkids? Yeah. So, but, but that's just like a really good practical piece to what I'm thinking about is that it's a, it's a Christianity that would compel individuals to, to feel so connected and so loved by their creator that they Mm. then are compelled to care the of creation, whether that's individuals or 
trees or um, yeah, the earth itself. That's if I was to put it uh, succinctly, I think that's the best that I could do. Obviously, I could probably rattle on for hours and hours about some of the more <laughs> specifics, but no, that's I'll, great. I'll leave it there. 